3: All right, welcome to the Halftime Report. I am Frank in for The Judge, Scott Wapner. Front and center today, the state of stocks. The market is under pressure as mixed economic data raises the possibility of more rate hikes ahead in the next text for the markets. That's just coming up next week. Joining joining me for the hour, all-star panel here, Shannon Sakosha, Michael Farr, Jason Snipe, and Steve Weiss. Let's start with the moment of truth for the consumer. We're gonna hear from some big retailers next week. The results, the guidance, and much more. Jason, the retail report was strong on Wednesday, but now we have the possibility of the Fed staying engaged for longer. Maybe, just maybe, a 50 basis point hike at the next meeting. You own Target and Home Depot. What are your expectations?
1: Yeah, so I would say this, Frank. Obviously, we've we've seen the consumer's resiliency over the last year and some change. Um, you know, and, and with with the Fed, that's been very much engaged. You know, with a retail's report that was blowout numbers, almost twice what consensus believed it would be. in PPI numbers up 7 tenths, so above concessions. And, you know, a CPI number that was relatively muted. It wasn't um, hot, but it, but, it, but it also wasn't some of the deceler- real deceleration that we've seen still up uh, about 5 tenths on the headline level. Um, so for me, as I, as I look to the retailers next week, you know, Target, Walmart, some of these names, I do think uh, that we'll, we'll continue to see some steady growth. I mean, for, for a lot of these folks, it's been an inventory issue, you know, and trying to manage through that over the last couple of quarters. And I, I do believe that that is that story is somewhat behind them. There might be another quarter uh, to, to see this issue. But I, but I do think margins will start to improve. But we are seeing trade down. I mean, the consumer is conscious of prices going forward. So, it, you know, for me, we're relatively neutral on a lot of these retail names. And, and we'll look to put them in review in, in Q2 of this year and whether we're going to unload them or not.
3: All right. Relatively neutral there. Shannon, you have a lot of retail exposure as well. Home Depot, Costco and Best Buy. What's your take on what you're expecting for next week?
4: Well, we're uh, at least, uh, you know, in terms of for next week, thinking about the potential for some moderation um, in same store sales growth, particularly for Home Depot, uh, a little bit of a concern about uh, full year sales. You know, we, we've benefited in the retail space from a higher ticket, right, due to inflation. And the challenge is, is that if you look at Home Depot, for instance, last quarter they actually had lower transactions. And so even though they beat, um, it was really on that, those, those higher ticket costs. And so I, I think one of the things that we really need to take a step back and say, you know, what's changed in the landscape over the course of the last couple of weeks? We obviously had a hotter than anticipated CPI and mm-hmm. PPI print. Um, But I think that we're still continuing to see a disinflationary uh, trend. And I think that is critical. The piece is, is how resilient can the consumer remain when the savings rate is down significantly from where we were a year ago and certainly from two years ago. Um, And I think that this is where you're going to start to see some divergence, Frank, in terms of the consumer discretionary space. Will there be some trade down? Will uh, consumers look at their basket, which has already been stretched? frankly, over the course of the last year due to inflation, are they going to look at at spending that differently? Um, I think the retail sales number was very strong, but we saw a similar uptick last year as well in January. And so I would caution that I think there's more of a story here than just in or out of the consumer. I think it's where you're in the consumer space that's really going to be important through the rest of the year.
3: You know, you hit on something, Shannon. We talk about a lot on this show and on other shows here on CNBC. The divergence between the consumer and the market. Uh, Note out from Apollo today. I want that kind of ties the two together. Uh, says in part, higher interest rates for longer is negative for consumer spending, capex, and corporate earnings. In short, under the no-landing scenario, the Fed is not done raising rates, which means that the trading environment from 2022 will be coming back. So during 2022, we saw a tough tough trading environment, but really strong consumer, Michael Farr. So do you believe that these rising rates, is that finally going to slow down the U.S. consumer?
5: Well, that's the whole point. I mean, right? We've got a lower demand. Uh, They really can't, as the Federal Reserve can't affect the supply chain issues, so they're going to go and try and curtail demand. And they've been trying. But... Uh, When you look at the consumer, Frank, think about the gas in the tank, the financial gas in the tank of the consumer over time. And you heard uh, Shannon and Jason both say that the savings rate is down. The other thing is credit card balances have rocketed. So the consumer is running out of wallet. They still have savings that I think can probably last through the summer, pent up from a lot of checks and savings through the pandemic and government checks and other things that are out there they are still spending, right? Resiliently spending because uh, they feel good. There's more money in the consumer's check, and if the consumer feels good in the U.S., they spend. Two-thirds of our GDP is driven by this consumer. So you have to pay attention to how much gas is in the tank. A Little more money from Social Security, 8% increase, right, in the cost of living, COLA adjustment for Social Security. A Little more money in the checks. The more money in the checks additionally is not keeping up with the increased prices of stuff that the consumer has to buy, rents and everything else. So I see the consumer getting more and more squeezed, and the attitude really has yet to change. So I'm cautious on the consumer as we go out into the second quarter, as Jason said earlier. Uh, And I think you have to be cautious, which more reason to look, if you're going to own this space, these companies with really good balance sheets, earnings, cash flow, and some experienced management.
3: Yeah, when you said gas intake, I don't know if that pun was intended, but gas prices is actually up 12 cents from just a month ago. So something to watch when we talk about consumer spending. All right, the retail trade, it could be in for a real reality check. Let's bring in CNBC.com retail and consumer reporter Melissa Repko with a look at what to expect. Melissa?
6: Walmart and Home Depot will kick off retail earnings season on Tuesday, and they'll be followed by other mall and big box retail players like Macy's and Best Buy and Gap. So far, the XRT and iBuy are both outperforming the S&P 500 year to date. A mix of factors are weighing on retailers' minds. Inflation, of course, is taking a bite out of household budgets. Spending on services like dining out and traveling has roared back, and higher interest rates could shake up consumers' decisions about buying a house. That could bring a more cautious tone to companies' comments and their outlooks. We may hear about smaller inventory orders, modest CapEx plans, or slowing, or no hiring. Yet for investors, there could be a silver lining here. Freight prices have come down, and the markdowns prompted by a lot of unsold goods may finally be receding. That can mean healthier profit margins, even if consumers aren't spending as freely.
3: So great, great stuff there, Melissa. Weiss, I didn't you know, leave you out there. I actually saved you for this one. I thought this might be up your alley. Melissa's saying it might be a reality check for these retail companies and people that continue to bet on the consumer. What was your take on what she had to say?
7: I think it will be a reality check. I think you have to reframe the conversation, frankly. You know, the term consumer's been resilient. Well, you know, what have they been resilient from? They're still on the back end of free money now. Rates have gone up but they're still, even though they've depleted most of their savings, spent it. So you have two different levels of consumer. You have the consumer that's, that's got high-paying jobs that we're seeing the luxury goods space. Then you've got the middle end of the consumer, and they've been squeezed, so they've been trading down. So theoretically, it should be helpful to Walmart and Target. And then you've got the lower-end consumer who's absolutely been crushed. So I don't know where the consumer's been resilient. Have the super wealthy been resilient? Well, no. Resilience means you come back from difficult conditions. And they haven't been in difficult conditions because they've got massive savings account. So if you focus on the broad economy, the consumer, as Michael Farr says, is getting hurt. So, when I look at a target, which I don't regard as cheap, which missed the last three quarters because of inventory that they just couldn't get control of or they could envision it's going to be a problem, it's not a stock I want to own here because I think that we're just starting just starting on the cusp of an economy that's really going to tail off meaningfully. If you look at GXO, GXO had a great quarter. You know who their customers are? The customers are Apple, they're Nike, pick a retailer. And you know what, while they said the economy is good, it's good for them because they picked up major market share. But if you talk to them, go through the numbers, their volumes were flat to down. So where's this resilient consumer? They're hunkering down and buying necessities. And with consumer being two thirds of of the economy, we're in for a boatload of trouble. So this major disconnect between what's actually happening, happening in the economy and with the market is just, it's so bizarre, it's ridiculous. People, you know, marijuana stocks should be doing better because everybody's so fricking high smoking this stuff, they can't see the reality. So I continue well, I was, to be. I, I didn't negative. see this taking that turn. I thought we'd get. I, more I
3: appreciate you yeah, taking the yeah. wheel and, and taking us in that direction. But I'm going to pull yeah, yeah. us back onto the road just for a minute. Uh, <laughs> Melissa, thank you. You're so much. You're welcome to Frank. We, we appreciate your support. Uh, speaking of the consumer, Staples is one of the worst performing sectors this year. But City initiates on staple stocks with buys. We're talking. Coke. We're talking Clorox. Um, We do have some ownership here on the desk just a bit. Uh, Michael, I'm going to come over to you. Um, What do you take about what do you think about this initiation with a buy for these consumer staple stocks? The uh, call here from the analysts is that commodity prices are going down, but pricing power is remaining the same.
5: I think it's a good call, and I think it's a good call for two reasons. I mean, uh, there's a lot about, and it pains me to say this, Frank, but there's a lot about what Weiss says that makes sense. I'm sorry. (laughs) Please don't ever write that down Why does it pain you? Hold on, hold on. Michael, does it it
7: pain you? Michael, give me a second. Does it pain you to say it because you're so accustomed (laughs) to being wrong and being right, agreeing with me, is
5: just so foreign? Is that why it pains you? What? You know, it's it's that I have a record of being right so much of the time, Weiss, <laughs> and, and that you don't. That when I agree with you this way, I know I'm no, on that's actually at risk. But 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 Frank, <laughs> Frank, please continue, uh, I think that in the diff- if we see if we see the economy getting getting a little more difficult, right? Seeing the economy uh, having a more difficult, and the Fed staying there. Uh, Then these consumer staples make more sense. The Procter & Gamble's, the Pepsi-Cola's that I do own. The stuff that people need gets you through a recession. Um, I I think Steve's right. We're going to have one. I still think we're going to have one. So these are the companies that you do want to own. Solid balance sheets, good dividends. And uh, yeah, they haven't performed well and that's another time when you want to buy them. But just the beginning of this year. Last year they had pretty good years.
3: Uh, Shannon, you own some of the stocks that are listed in this you note, know, including Estee Lauder. What's your take about this thought that with commodity prices decreasing, that pricing power can stay the same? We just spent a few minutes just talking about perhaps the consumer
8: weakening.
4: Well, I mean, so, so there is, if you think about the volumes that these consumer staples companies do, Frank, it doesn't take much in terms of improving input costs to, and, and really a very modest improvement in operating margin to really um, be expansive from a bottom line perspective. But I would caution, it, this for me is more of a valuation question. Um, and, and Michael just noted this, consumer staple stocks, Performed very well last year. And so if you think about the rationale for adding them to your portfolio, um, you really have to look at the underlying margin improvement that you're going to get and see if you're going to get that expansion of earnings that justifies the valuation that at which they're trading at today. And I think that there's a handful of those. um, But I would say that, you know, you have to be very careful that, you know, maybe some of the run from a defensive rotation perspective has already occurred. And I think that's why you've seen some of the weakness we've seen to start the year.
3: Uh, Jason, we'll come over to you. You own Procter & Gamble. Shares up about a percent right now, but actually down 8% year to date. At the same time, the dollar's on the rise, up almost 2% this month. Any concerns about what this means for Procter & Gamble?
1: You got it, Frank. So Procter & Gamble, and Shannon just mentioned this, I mean, staples are expensive. Procter trades at 22 times, the market's really roughly around 18, and and with the dollar creeping up, 55% of their business is done overseas. I didn't love the quarter. I mean, I, I do own this stock. I didn't love the, the last quarter. There's some EPS deceleration. It was down around 4%. A little bit of growth on sales. Organic sales was up about 5 percent, but there, there's still margin pressure there. Um, and, and with the dollar creeping up and, and, and obviously rates under pressure, yields under pressure, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's a tough space for me. And I know gener- generally speaking, Staples, this is the playbook, right, heading into a recession. But I think, I think you, could, you could spread out uh, the capital here and look to other, other places in the market where you could see some more value.
3: All right, let's stick with this theme of staples. A member of the investment committee is actually bailing on a staple stock. Let's bring in Bill Baruch. And, Bill, thanks for being here. You actually just sold Coca-Cola. That's one of the names listed in this city buy note.
9: Yeah, I, I sold it. It's more of a rotation, but first I'll talk about, about Coke, and you just mentioned Procter & Gamble. We're talking about forward multiples in the mid-20s. I think Coke's about 24, same thing with Procter & Gamble. They're also becoming pretty crowded trades. I think this uh, this sort of buy note that, that we're talking about right now is a little bit of a... Been talk to, we've seen a lot of banks move in that direction. For us, though, it's not just abandoning staples. I've rotated into AT&T. AT&T, I, I think, is sort of an unloved name. So going from a crowded trade to something that can actually have some tailwinds. And I think AT&T with a multiple one third of the size of Coca-Cola, if we're going to go into this recession um, in sort of a recessionary trade, we're going to see a lot of value in the lower multiple staples. But those high multiple staples like Coca-Cola, I I think we're going to uh, they're going to struggle. Not only that, if there's liquidation from a crowded trade, there's going to be some headwinds there.
3: So uh, Coca-Cola reported that volumes were flat in the United States. They really had their earnings that were in line on pricing power. Do you have worries that the pricing power is going to diminish or that commodity prices will spike back up?
9: Well, first, I I don't think the pricing power is going to diminish. What I'm really worried about, when we came into the year very bullish on the consumer, we were really expecting this retail sales number that, that we saw in January. And I think the, the economy is really humming along. That's a problem, though. The You're Fed needs to stop the economy from humming along. So some of these staples that are really tied to the consumer and that are have a higher multiple could really become more of a pulled down by the broader market if we were to see the Fed become more aggressive and tighten. So I'm really worried about a Coca-Cola in that environment, less worried about an AT&T, get a little bit of a better right. dividend. Also in the story like an AT&T, just to pivot here, is the CapEx. A lot of investment in 5G right now, they're not going to have to make that type of investment that they've had in the past looking out to the future. So I, I like names like that, especially ones that are unloved. All right, just to be
3: clear, Coke dividend at 3%. Michael Farr, what do you think about Bill's thesis here, getting out of Coke and then jumping into AT&T?
5: I, I, I wouldn't know how to do it. Uh, basically, I'm, I'm a lot more like Warren Buffett, where Warren Buffett's owned Coca-Cola for the last 50 years, I think, and never is going to sell it. And, and yes, I know I'm always safe if I say I'm a little bit like Buffett and these sort of things. So I wouldn't know how to trade a company like Coca-Cola. I think it's a core portfolio position that I would continue to hold. I think he may be absolutely right in the near term, I, because I do see pressure on the consumer, and I think it's coming. Uh, and I and I think uh, it, when you do see it, co- companies like Coca-Cola and Pepsi and others will be least affected. He has a good point, but. I'm just not a trader of Coca-Cola, and I'm still worried about the consumer as we get out to the middle part of this year.
3: Yeah, Coke shares right now up 1.5%. Just to wrap this up, Bill's point, uh, AT&T's dividend at almost uh, five and three quarters of a percent compared to the Coke dividend at 3% if you're keeping track of dividends. All right, thank you to Bill Baruch. Straight ahead in our Thanks. chart of the day, this mystery stock is jumping after earnings with shares now up over 25% just this week. Stay tuned. Halftime, back in two minutes. All right. Welcome back to Halftime. Our contestant Brewer joins us now with our chart of the day. Contestant,
11: Hi there, Frank. It's DraftKings up more than 13% following an earnings beat and upbeat guidance for profitability by the end of the year. Three key points here from the call. CEO Jason Robbins has his megaphone out to announce cost-cutting measures. This is really a new approach for this company that has been a profligate spender to win customers. Today, he said on the call, he doesn't need to do that. Two, the company expects their percentage of hold to increase based on the popularity of parlay bets. With customers, they're uh, very popular because they love them for the big payouts. The company loves them because they don't have to pay out as often. Three, iGaming is the next frontier. Casino games online. It is far more lucrative than even sports betting. DraftKings is integrating Golden Nugget online onto its platform. It has received approval for its first Live casino game and all eyes now, Frank, on New York State, which has introduced a bill to uh, allow iGaming. We'll see what happens there.
3: Yeah, we'll certainly be watching that. Uh, Chart of the day, chart of the year right now, shares up 78% year to date. Jason, I want to come over to you. You own MGM, which obviously also owns MGM Bets. How are you feeling about the online betting space right now?
1: So I, as the regulatory environment continues to improve, I think some of these names could do well. Um, for me, I think it's a, it's a very crowded space. I like MGM as kind of a blended uh, casino stock here. They, they have their hard assets, and then they also have iGaming and the sports betting uh, division. I also like it because they had, early in the pandemic, had very little exposure to Macau. Obviously, Macau has, has opened now. You know, So I think these stocks still have some tailwind, you know, but, but I think it's under review for me going into the second half of the year as I believe the consumer is going to slow down. And I think some of these stocks go down with it.
3: Uh, Shannon, would you look at when in Las Vegas Sands again? I know you got out of those names. Any thoughts about getting back into them?
4: I mean, I mean, obviously, Frank, we're continuing to see that that rotation from goods to services spending. Consumers are out there looking for experiences. And, and, you know, with the China reopenings, you know, beginning in early January, um, there's certainly an opportunity for Macau, which is why we had owned Sands previously. We wanted some leverage. uh, We wanted to be exposed to that and potentially leverage that. Um, I think, you know, when I think about gaming, however, you know, Contessa made a great point about the spend that's necessary to get. Um, new users for a DraftKings or a FanDuel or any of the um, online. And I think that, you know, being in Massachusetts and watching all of those ads over the last couple of weeks, <laughs> the spend is still really significant. And so I think, you know, that the benefit of being with some of the old guard, if you will, um, in the in the gaming space is that, you know, they, they've spent that money over time. And so they have that that core group of consumers, clients um, that, that, att- that go to their and, and experience their casinos. And right. anything online is going to be incrementally positive to that.
3: Yeah, two big casino projects up there in Massachusetts on both the east and the west side of the state. And our thanks to Contessa Brewer for bringing us that chart of the day. All right, let's move on to some calls of the day. Disney reiterated as a buy at Daiwa. The firm says it sees international growth with Disney, which will further drive parks
5: outperformance.
3: Michael, you own Disney.
5: I own Disney. I continue to like Disney. It's kind of doing what we expected it to do. It's still on the rebound from the pandemic. uh, And it's products and streaming in particular, continuing to perform. I'm going to be very eager to keep watching earnings very, very closely. But uh, where the consumer is spending is where you kind of want to be. And the consumer is spending at Disney. All right. Next up, Roku double upgraded it to a buy at Bank of America.
3: The firm saying its fundamentals are bottoming out. No one here owns it. But Jason, what are your thoughts on this name?
1: So I, I don't own uh, Roku, I, I own Netflix here in the space. I mean, I, I like Netflix as a, just really a pure play. Obviously there's opportunity in the, uh, how, they, how they monetize password sharing and I think there's also opportunity internationally. Uh, and then I think the ad supported tier, which, which, is, a, which is a great opportunity for the stock, you know, particularly with a lower end consumer. I think that, that will co- continue to increase market share for them. So that's really my read on, on the consumer as it relates to, to these types of stocks.
3: All right, turn our attention to the transport space now. C.H. Robinson, downgraded to to underweighted. J.P. Morgan, Michael Farr, you don't own it, but you do own FedEx.
5: I do own FedEx, and I like FedEx. And, you know, FedEx has struggled in and out for the years, but I'm a long-term investor. My average hold is six years on every one of these companies. So... FedEx, I like. They have certainly rebounded as the economy has rebounded, as the supply chain has uh, eased up and smoothed along. I think it's still very well positioned, well management. And they made a bunch of investments over the past few years in big, heavy capital equipment. They're going to start to continue to reap the benefits of those going forward. All right, Wise,
3: you're not in this name, but you are in GXO, as you mentioned earlier. You actually got out of their, I guess, sister company, the company that spun out GXO, Xpo. Just give us a sense of what you think about C.H. Robinson and also the activist investor involvement in this name.
7: Yeah, so look, uh, activists, I mean, generally your playbook is I'll agitate, I'll see the stock go up, maybe I'll make a little coin, I'll ask for a board seat. They're not going to influence what C.H. Robinson's doing, which is actually a good, a good company. I think it's in the wrong spot in this economy, so I don't blame for downgrading it, and I don't think it's particularly cheap like the others, so I would be on the sidelines.
3: Yeah, new CEO there from for C.H. Robinson after that activist investor involvement. All right, coming up, Nvidia shares pulling back ahead of earnings next week, where the committee stands on it, and the rest of semis, halftime. We'll be right back.
11: What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC.
6: All
3: right, welcome back to Halftime. Let's get to the headlines with Tyler Matheson.
12: Frank, thank you very much. U.S. military officials say recovery operations have concluded off the coast of South Carolina, and the final piece of debris from the Chinese spy balloon that was shot down almost two weeks ago are now heading to an FBI lab in Virginia for analysis. The NTSB says security video of a train that traveled another 20 miles from where this was shot before derailing in Ohio indicates it was having a mechanical problem well before it came off its tracks, spilling dangerous chemicals and causing a major environmental crisis. The video uh, shows sparks and flames coming from one of its wheels as it passed by there, you see that uh, scary sight. and a power problem at an international terminal at New York's JFK airport has continued into a second day, disrupting more than 100 flights. It is a real snarl there. Some people, Frank, say they don't expect to get out until Sunday at the earliest. Back to you, a Friday before holiday weekend. I'm sure there's a lot of upset people there right now. Ty. Oh, we, t- we New Yorkers take these kind of things really well. <laughs> Tyler Matheson
3: with the sarcasm. Thank you, yeah. Tyler. Great to see you. All right. NVIDIA shares are lowered today, but they're up more than 40% year to date. The company is set to report earnings next week. And joining us now, Christina Parts with with much more on what to expect. Hey, Christina. Yes.
0: Hello. So even if chatbot messages can get a little creepy, check out the front page of the New York Times. The generative AI trend has been in the works for a while and it isn't going anywhere anytime soon. It's going to be more embedded with everything we do each day. But NVIDIA is often touted as the main beneficiary given its graph Processing units with UBS, for example, saying that ChatGPT used 10,000 NVIDIA GPUs just to train the model. But Is the massive run-up in the stock that uh, you just heard from Frank up, uh, what, 44% year-to-date, is it warranted, or should we expect a near-term reset? It may be contingent on these few areas of focus. So first, the ramp of its advanced GPU, which is at a higher price point this is this past quarter, and then, of course, any comments on how AI advancement will help drive these GPU sales. Keep in mind, not everyone is going to use GPUs for AI. Google uses TPUs. I know it's confusing with all the acronyms, but those are probably processes that are more specialized for machine learning. And then, both Intel and AMD warned of data center weakness, which encompasses GPUs. So will NVIDIA do the same, especially since gaming plays such a big role for GPU sales and it's been, you know, kind of weak after over the past few months? In other words, they've got the new products, they've got the hype, but is the, de- the demand there right now? Another concern is capital expenditures, cuts coming from Amazon, Meta, Microsoft, Google, it's, or I should say decelerating. And lastly, will demand in China offset any further new changes to the US export rules. These are all areas of interest that we're going to be focusing on with right. Nvidia.
3: Christina, stay with us. Jason, you own Nvidia. We just mentioned the run up in the stock. You still in this stock? It also got a price target increase at KeyBank. They raised it from 220 to 280.
1: Yeah, so NVIDIA has been a long-term holding for us, and obviously it's run a, a ton. It's up almost 45% uh, year-to-date, as, as Christina just mentioned. But as we talk about this goal rush in, in AI and, and the GPU chips, uh, NVIDIA stands to benefit the most, I think, of, of, of all the chip makers in the industry. And I think you know that that's just one sleeve, data center, gaming, obviously other sleeves, and there's been some deceleration there. The other piece for me is... I, Inventory also was an issue uh, for a lot of the semi-names, NVIDIA included. I think that has been worked down some. So I, I'm, I'm still positive on the stock and, and still believe uh, that, that it deserves a core holding in our portfolio.
3: So, Shannon, you have some chip exposure as well. We're talking analog devices and AMD. What's your take on NVIDIA, and why not be in NVIDIA with all this AI hype?
4: Well, it's a it's a tough question, and and if you were asking me two years ago, you would have said with all this gaming hype that we had and, and all of the uh, the PC sales that we were experiencing um, during the uh, the work from home stay at home period. Uh, you know, this is a, this is always a tough call, and it's it's a stock that we talk a lot about adding to our portfolios. We have very limited semi exposure, um, and I think that one of the things that I I am a bit concerned that maybe it's a little bit ahead of itself given the excitement about AI. With that being said, that is the long term catalyst for this name. There's There's no doubt about that. And so, you know, with all of the the attention that's been given to AI, that perhaps mitigates some of the pressure that they're seeing in data center that AMD is experiencing in data center as well, um, and and perhaps the lower volume in PC sales. So I think there is a justification for the excitement and enthusiasm around NVIDIA, but I just go back to the valuation and try to determine if it's worth it um, or if some of this has been pulled ahead of it.
3: All right, so Christina, we're we're kind of talking about the price target raises and things for NVIDIA. A lot of that is about AI. At some point, that's going to be priced into this stock. But what other aspects of NVIDIA should investors be paying attention to?
0: Well, you have gaming, for one, because that drives a lot of the GPU sales. And that's been, uh, I guess you could say, not necessarily a point of weakness, but it has been a little weaker after the last little while. And you know this, you've covered a lot of gaming companies. But I think that uh, we could also pinpoint some other names that could be beneficiaries like Marvell, Broadcom. Even AMD has a chip that could compete with uh, GPUs to perform generative AI, too. So we have to consider that if you're thinking maybe $211.39 is a little too expensive to enter the stock right now. There are some other names uh, that have been a little bit more beaten down, too. All
3: right, Christina, great stuff. Thank you for being here. All right, let's shift gears a little bit. Cybersecurity Palo Alto Networks also reporting next week. Weiss, you actually just trimmed Palo Alto.
7: I did look, I got into the stock around 150 plus level it's been a great move the the market's binary in terms of how it treats earnings, and it could be down a lot, it could be up a lot. so with my market view, uh, you know I decided to take some off the table i'm still there because I still think it's relatively and I hate to say this inexpensive. Given, given where the price is and what their earnings could be. But nonetheless, you just have to be prudent. When you can ring the cash register after a substantial move in a short period of time, then I think you have to do it. You know, Jason's been great in the stock. He's got a different view than I do and, and a different strategy. So I don't blame him for staying there. It's just not for me.
3: So, Weiss, let me ask you before we get over to Jason. Um, you sold ahead of the, the next print. Um, Dan Ives, without, with a note out today, really bullish on Palo Alto, saying this, that 46% of workloads are currently in the cloud. He believes that's going to hit 70% by 2025. Um, that's about a 50% increase. So isn't that a big tailwind for this business?
7: It is, but you have the one thing that can get in the way, and that's the market. So, uh, you know, it's uh, it's just interesting how people look at things in this market. You took a look. You said uh, your comment on NVIDIA, you know, that paraphrasing, ultimately it's going to reflect the GPUs, what do you mean? Ultimately, it's selling at 100 times earnings. So take a look at the valuation of Palo Alto, and it's not cheap. It may be cheap long term, Mm -hmm. but the market's going to come back for these stocks. It's not over and done with. And when it comes back for it, I'll be able to get Palo Alto back at 150. Hey, I'll feel like crap if it goes up to 200 on the print, but that's a risk I'm willing to take.
3: All right, snap! Before we go, really quick. I mean, Weiss does. And a I'm still points.
7: there. I still have position.
3: No, we understand. I, I still have position.
7: Trim. I haven't sold that all. There. Understood, yeah. but you trimmed it. Yes, uh, exactly. Overdy, I Weiss
3: does make a pretty yep. solid point. It is expensive. Are you planning to stay in this name long term?
1: I am for now, and I'm, I'm glad Weiss is still in it. Um, but for for me, and he, he makes valid points. I mean, the stock the stock is trading at 50 times forward, right? But and the price action has been really strong this year. It's up over 25 percent year to date. Um, I just think there's some still there's some earnings uh, appreciation. I think there's some that will still play out in the stock. I think Billings is strong. We'll see some Billings numbers that are really strong, and then I think the from a Fed perspective, they got some really strong Fed contracts coming online. So I really like the stock. I think from an enterprise perspective, it's just not something that enterprise is willing to cut at this stage, you know, from a cybersecurity perspective. So that's why we own it.
3: Yeah, that kind of echoes Dan Ives's note. But just by the way, price target of 200 for Palo Alto in today's note. All right, straight ahead, we're talking Deer, one of today's big earnings movers. We've got ownership right here on the committee. That trade is next on Halftime.
8: Welcome back to half
3: shares of Deer almost eight percent higher after posting a big earnings beat. Our Seema Modi just spoke with management moments ago. She joins us here with more. Hey Seema.
6: Frank, despite all the, uh, the skepticism around Deer, the company really reporting a strong earnings report, twenty four percent ahead of consensus on earnings. Biggest business, its precision ag business saw revenue climb fifty five percent year over year, which allowed the company to raise its twenty twenty three outlook. CFO Josh Jepson sharing that Deer's order book is full for this year and that lower fertilizer prices and energy prices are helping farmers spend more on equipment. Plus, there's the infrastructure bill, which is finally resulting in higher construction spending. Where they did see weakness was smaller tractors used for landscaping that's tied to the softness in the housing industry. Here's what Jepson shared with CNBC about price increases going forward.
3: We've seen strong price realization and, and really driven by the inflationary pressures that we that we experienced in, in 22 and, and again coming into 23. But we've been able to to price to offset uh, and more than offset those inflationary pressures. That said, we, we do expect to see some of that start to ma- moderate in the back half of the year.
6: So price is expected to moderate at the back half of this year. At the same time, Jepson says deers. Research and development spending is at a record level, just shy of $2.2 billion, up 14% compared to a year ago. He also said that M&A will be an important driver of its business. It's already made about four to five different acquisitions in the past three years. He sees the most opportunity in machine learning and artificial intelligence, Frank, and that was really on display at CES, where it unveiled its exact shot technology, which really uses targeted fertilizer uh, for, for different seeds.
3: AI making an impact in just about every industry. Right. SEMA, stick here. Let's bring in Craig Sarenbach, principal, Bartlett, uh, principal at Bartlett Wealth Management. Craig, sorry to mispronounce that for a second. So, Craig, you're a Deer shareholder. What did you think about the current quarter?
2: Wow. That's all you can really say, Frank. Uh, it was a tremendous quarter for Deer. Another example of a company that's able to produce strong results in spite of a tough macro. As Seema mentioned, you know, huge growth in their precision ag, uh, small ag, still up fourteen percent construction up twenty six percent their operating margins doubled. um... Raised their guidance so we're looking at potentially thirty dollars a share in earnings over the course of the next year and if you apply a current multiple to that uh... the stock could be well over five hundred dollars a share and it's pretty close to an all-time high so we like it a lot we've liked it for a long long time and continue to add for clients you know, uh,
3: Sema just hit on this a minute ago. Deer involved using AI in its business. Does that excite you at all, or is their business really more analog in your mind?
2: No, it's it's incredible. It's it's a sign that technology is really everywhere, including in the industrial space. And as she mentioned, you've got precision targeting of fertilizers, you've got satellite imagery, you've got the ability for some of these tractors to drive without a human being. Mm. And so for a farmer, that's a way to reduce long-term operating costs, and it's a reason why they've got tremendous pricing power, and we think long growth ahead of them.
3: All right, Craig, we're going to bring a few other people in this conversation. Weiss, you actually trimmed your position in Deer this morning.
7: so so i bought the stock uh, you know just over 400 and i said look if they miss well take a look at cat cat sort of didn't really have that binary effect uh, so Deer does execute better. They have all along than cat. So I thought the upside may be there for the quarter. Um, But, you know, it it wasn't a perfect quarter. It was a great quarter. But inventories are also higher. Inventories typically running about 800 million. They're a billion and a half now. So I think it's a great story going forward. I don't think it's expensive. But again, given my market view, I think I'll get this back down to where it was. I still kept some of the position. 15 times earnings, I mean, it's pretty good for this company. And I do like their AI applications. I do like their autonomous tractors, et cetera. That's the future. But farmers also have to be able to afford those, which are more expensive. So great story, great company. Uh, I just think it may be the wrong stock for the market moving forward.
6: Can I just add on the valuation point, Frank? Um, this was one of the concerns going into today's report uh, is that Deer is trading at 15 times earnings. Now, one way to play the agriculture sector and perhaps a company that is trading at a discount, you look at Agco, which actually had a very strong report a couple of weeks ago. And CNH Industrials, both those stocks are trading around 10 to 11 times earnings versus Deer at 15.
3: Shannon, over to you. I mean, you're not in this name, but you are in the GUNR. That's the Natural Resources ETF, kind of a, a related play.
4: Yeah, that's about, it's anywhere from 25 to 30% agriculture usually, Frank. Right now it's a little bit under 30%. Um, And, you know, we we like the agriculture play both on the private and the public side. Um, I think that one of the things about deer, and and I think an important point, you know, the Implementation and integration of technology is going to continue to be increasingly important for industrial companies, and so we've owned Honeywell, for instance, for a long time for that very reason. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think as as Deer continues um, to focus and we move towards the commercialization, really, of farming, especially here in the United States, um, I think that this could be a a longer-term play um, for many investors.
3: All right. Thank you to Sima Modi for bringing us that CFO interview, and also to Craig Sarenbach for that shareholder insight. Appreciate both of you for being here. All right. Up next, Mike Santoli joins us with his midday word. And still ahead, we're going to grade your trade. Email us at askhalftime at CNBC.com or tweet us using the hashtag grade my trade and halftime. We'll be right back. Welcome back to halftime. Senior markets commentator Mike Santoli joins us now from the New York Stock Exchange with his midday word. Hey there, Mike.
8: Hey, Frank, you know, uh, with a. S&P 500 on pace for a second straight down week, just marginally uh, at this point. I guess the question is, has anything really changed about the character of the market, the leadership, that we should start to worry about much deeper downside in a hurry? It's not yet clear to me that you have to flip and make that case. Uh, You have things like small caps outperforming today. They're up 1% for the week on a week-to-date basis. Consumer discretionary, industrials, equal weighted, have done better. They're actually in the positive column. So you do have a lot being skimmed off the top of some of the mega caps, uh, a little more you know, defensive tone to the market today. So far today, the yields have calmed down a little bit. So that move higher in Treasury yields, uh, it's definitely pronounced. It definitely has the market's attention. It's something that's probably going to remain a headwind at these levels, but it's not out of control and it's not unanchored uh, relative to where we were just a few uh, months ago.
3: You know, Mike, you're hitting on something I was looking at myself. From the start of February, yields on the 10-year up about 50 basis points from their low on February 1st. The dollar up almost 2% from the start of February. What is that going to mean for the market as we continue throughout this month? We had a really strong January. Is that going to perhaps create a fizzle as we finish out this month?
8: If it, if it were to continue, I really do think if you, if you had acceleration in uh, the dollar gains and in, uh, in yields, and if, of course that's going to mean it's mostly due to a perceived hawkish uh, Fed on the margin, yeah, I think it would uh, be a test for, uh, for the market. The offset so far are that the economy is actually hotter than anticipated. And so you do have that support for a lot of the cyclical parts of this market. Remember, when we made the real panicky lows in June and October of last year, it wasn't just what the Fed was doing or rates were doing. It was a stagflation panic. So we don't have the stag piece of it, at least not yet uh, right now in the data.
3: All right. Certainly something to watch. Mike Santoli, live from the New York Stock Exchange. Mike, great to see you as always. All right. Grade My Trade, that's coming up next. And during February, we are celebrating Black Heritage throughout the month with stories from our CNBC teammates, contributors, and leaders in business. Here is Robert Smith of Vista Equity Partners.
1: Today, one of the primary barriers to access and opportunity in African-American communities is Internet connectivity. Reliable, affordable, and fast internet access is something many of us take for granted. However, approximately 40% of Black households don't have access to high-speed fixed broadband internet, and approximately 80% of our HBCUs exist in broadband deserts. As the pandemic has shown, the internet is no longer an accessory, it's a necessity. If we can provide access to digital infrastructure, we can create more on-ramps to opportunity and build towards a more equitable future.
3: All right. Welcome back. Looking at the uh, markets right now, taking a bit of a downturn during halftime. NASDAQ right now with session lows down a percent and a half being dragged lower right now by Airbnb, Diamondback Energy and Moderna. All right. Turning our attention now to grade my trade. The first one up is for Shannon. Nawaz in Little Rock, Arkansas, but Alphabet at 115. They want to know if they should add more.
4: Well, this is really a time horizon question. Um, I think if you have a shorter term time horizon adding to your position here, um, you know, I would probably wait a bit. Uh, we're starting to see this oscillation away from growth and, and some concerns about the potential for the Fed to be uh, a little bit hotter um, in terms of rate hikes in the next meeting. Uh, longer term, however, though, if you wanna hold this name, um, I think adding to your position here um, is, is probably warranted given our expectations for growth in 2024.
3: All right. Next up, a question for Michael. Jason bought J and J at one fifty-eight fifty. What's your grade,
5: Jason? You're looking good today, but uh, only by a couple of uh, dollars here. Uh, this is one of my top 10 stocks for 2023. I've owned this stock forever. Tyler Matheson's laughing right now because he always teases me for always liking j and J. I wouldn't know how to trade <laughs> J&J, but I'm really happy. I'm really happy I own it. And I think over the next few years, you'll be happy you own it, too. And it's got a credit rating higher than the U.S. government. How can that go wrong? Good dividend, too. All right. Next
3: question is for Jason. Gary owns PayPal at an average cost of 98 bucks. They want to know if they should average
7: down.
1: Yeah. So, so for me, on PayPal, they reported last week there was a beat on revenue. It was up around 7%. Uh, total payment volumes were up 9%. Uh, they announced a, roughly around a $4 billion buyback in 2023. So for, for me, as, as, as we look at growth going forward, I think it's, it's challenging to average down here. You likely will be able to get it lower. Elliott's still in there, so I do see some acceleration on EPS growth, but I, I would hold off here.
3: All right, last question for Weiss. Michael in Orlando, Florida, writes, The stock market turbulence is scaring me. I sold everything that was up 1% to 3% and bought a 9-month CD at 4.7%. When will we know that it's a good time to start buying value stocks again? He says he's hoping to retire in 2030. Weiss, what do you think?
7: Yeah, well, you see, that's the thing. Nobody rings a bell and saying it's time. So if you're retiring in 2030, uh, I definitely wouldn't be in all equities because there's a limited time to recover uh, losses if the market sells off. However, I also don't have you know, anything against going in and, uh, and buying high-quality compounding stocks uh, and starting now. Now, in terms of the CD, frankly, if you're any kind of tax bracket, I think you buy treasuries because they're somewhat tax advantage, not being taxable by the state levels. All right. And so the net yields will just be better for you.
3: All right, Weiss, we've got to leave it there. Final trades coming up next on Halftime. Stay with us.
5: Final trades. Shannon, you're up first.
4: Martin Marietta, LLM. Bar.
5: Six-month treasury bill, 5%, and I love Weiss. Jason? (laughs) Palo Alto ahead of
3: earnings. Weiss, last word.
7: I love far too short Rivian.
3: There we go. That's going to do it for halftime. The exchange with our Kelly Evans begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime
2: Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern only on CNBC.